All right, so I don't know if you've experienced this, but I feel like I've been aware of this weird ritual at the beginning of most social interactions in recent months. Because greeting people in the age of COVID is just weird. Like most of us were socialized to greet others with a question, like a question that has an implied answer, not one we're expecting to necessarily be answered truthfully. Something like, how's it going? How are you doing? Como estas? But in the midst of pandemic life, it just to me feels like a weird way to start a conversation, to set people up to say, fine, I'm doing well. It rings more dissonantly maybe than it did before. The truth is there's always been this kind of certain amount of cordial nicety in that kind of interaction. We say, how are you as like a courtesy? Maybe we're trying to communicate concern about the other person, but truthfully, we're often not really asking folks to be open about what's going on with them, right? Particularly if it's something hard. Anyone who's gone through a season of challenge, you know, knows this firsthand that the shallow small talk can feel really hard. How am I, really? My sister's sick, my marriage is falling apart, I'm suffering from depression, which is leading me to engage in unhealthy behaviors like eating more than I should and drinking a lot of wine. How are you, right? No. Usually when we're in our seasons of crisis, we just kind of go along with the cordiality. We keep it shallow. I'm fine, we say, knowing it's not really true, but it's part of the game we all play, just ignoring the elephant in the room. But in the era of Corona, the elephant is like a lot harder to ignore. The elephant isn't just in the room with us. It is the very reason we cannot be in a room together. The big, fat, stupid elephant is like at the heart of this whole situation. So really when we're asking, how are you? What are we asking exactly? Like, how are you feeling about the terrible ginormous elephant that we can't escape that's slowly killing us all today? Is that the question? <sighs> so I find myself feeling the need to like qualify my greetings with people. This is like the weird ritual I referred to at the beginning, like each social exchange I, I find myself going through like, hmm, I hope this email finds you well, relatively in the midst of everything that's going on or understanding everything is terrible. How are you doing today? Sometimes I wonder if it might just be easier if we could like, drop the whole thing and start every exchange with like, hey, everything sucks. The world's going to hell, period. So let's talk. So this is the third teaching in a series I'm calling Faith in the Exile. And in this series, we're looking at the era in the biblical narrative called the Babylonian exile, a time around the sixth century BC when the nation of Judah, the community that remained of the people that had once been called Israel, suffered a devastating loss. It was the loss of nearly everything they knew. Their capital city was conquered. Their temple was destroyed. Most of the people who weren't killed were carted off to Babylon to live there as exiles. They were separated from all that had made their life feel normal. And this exiled community would find themselves in Babylon for about 75 years, which meant that few, if any of the individuals who were brought to Babylon actually returned to the place they had once called the promised land. The exiles had to find a new way to live in Babylon, a new way to navigate faith 
in God. Well, we're considering this era right now because, of course, we're living through our own dystopian reality in many ways. And as we try to navigate such challenging daily realities that we're currently facing, we're looking at this time of the exile for some wisdom from our ancestors on how to move through this kind of disruption, how to hold on to community and culture and faith and, and adapt all of those things in the midst of a prolonged season of crisis. And looking at the Babylonian exiles and their response to the exile experience, one of the things we have to attend to is the way that they gave voice to the suffering that was part of the exile reality. Now we might feel this awkwardness of how to speak of this challenging daily reality we're living through. We might not want to discuss the horrible elephant when we get on the Zoom call. We might prefer to minimize our thoughts around it. Maybe like let alone the ways we speak of it. And while that might be actually the appropriate response in the context of like starting a work meeting, the ancient exiles in Babylon seem to understand that the pain of exile, it does need to be processed. Somewhere, the truth of what has been lost needs to be named. The questions about where God is in the midst of the tragedy of exile have to be posed. And for our ancient ancestors, this work often happened through a poetic tradition of processing suffering, the tradition of lament. So today we're going to take a look at one of the books that comes to us from the exile, and it speaks directly to the experience of suffering they had there. And it's the book in the Hebrew Bible known as Lamentations. As biblical books go, Lamentations is pretty short. It's only five chapters long, and each chapter is a poem. So the book is really a book of poetry featuring five poetic laments, processing the pain of the fall of Jerusalem and the season of exile that followed. And while the author of the book is technically anonymous, most scholars generally believe that it was the prophet Jeremiah who wrote the book. We've spoken of Jeremiah before, Remember, he was the prophet who wrote from Jerusalem to those who were first carried off to Babylon, sharing that message, settle in, we're going to be here a while. And in this book, Jeremiah isn't speaking words of warning to the people of Judah, like the prophet often does. He's not talking about a judgment that's going to come if they don't change their behavior. He's not speaking on behalf of God, um, kind of words from the Lord of where this is all going. Instead, in this series of five poems, the author of Lamentations attends to the pain that is manifest in the experience of exile. And he writes from that place of loss. The heart of the book is chapter three, the third lament. It's the longest and in some ways the most diverse in the perspectives it covers. So today, as we look at this ancient work of lament, I'm going to invite us to take a look at this whole chapter, chapter three, all 66 verses, because it's, like I say, it's a poem. It really is one unit. Um, so we're going to read and we're going to listen to the lament. And we're going to consider together some of what it seemed to be accomplishing for the author and for his audience. And then we'll reflect a little bit together on where this kind of process might be helpful 
and giving language to some of our own experiences of suffering. So I'm going to start by reading this passage. And I acknowledge it is a bit long. It's 66 verses. But I want to remind you as I do this that this is poetry we're looking at. No doubt we're going to miss important poetic elements because we're reading it in translation, not the original Hebrew. But even in translation, the imagery is very evocative. So I encourage you to take a moment to experience the poem, like turn off the kind of academic brain for a bit. We'll go back and examine this more academically in a, in a little bit. But lament is really intended to be emotional, right? We miss the point if we don't allow ourselves to enter into the emotion that it is intending to evoke. So I'm going to try to read it in an emotionally connected way, and I invite you to listen in the same. Um, you can close your eyes if it's helpful. The texts will be, project, will be kind of projected in the corner, so you're also welcome to read along. What's ever going to help you kind of connect and enter in. And as you listen, I do invite you to note a few things internally, to be aware of kind of some of the things that come up emotionally for you. You can just note these in your, in your mind, make a mental note. If it's more helpful, you might want to grab a piece of paper and scribble a few things down. Um, whatever's going to help you kind of be able to kind of enter in and, and, and recognize what you're feeling. Um, I have a few things to look at that are here on the little slide. Um, first of all, pay attention to what resonates for you. Are there places where you really connect with what the poet is naming that like, oh, aha, I feel that too. Or are there things that disturb you? Does the author say something you find really troubling? What about surprising? Anything that seems unexpected, like, whoa, where did that come from? And anything else that kind of comes to mind or lands, lands somewhere emotionally for you, feel free to kind of t take a note. All right, so we're going to start. I just invite you to join me and take a few deep, calming breaths. And we'll begin. I am the man who has experienced affliction from the rod of the Lord's wrath. He drove me into captivity and made me walk in darkness and not light. He repeatedly attacks me. He turns his hand against me all day long. He has made my mortal skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with bitter hardship. He has made me reside in deepest darkness like those who died long ago. He has walled me in so that I cannot get out. He has weighted me down with heavy prison chains. Also, when I cry out desperately for help, he has shut out my prayer. He has blocked every road I take with a wall of hewn stones. He has made every path impassable. To me, he is like a bear lying in ambush, like a hidden lion stalking its prey. He has obstructed my paths and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. 
he drew his bow and made me the target for his arrow. He shot his arrows into my heart. I have become the laughingstock of all people. Their mocking song all day long. He has given me my fill of bitter herbs and made me drunk with bitterness. He ground my teeth in gravel. He trampled me in the dust. I am deprived of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I said, my endurance has expired. I have lost all hope of deliverance from the Lord. Remember my impoverished and homeless condition, which is a bitter poison. I continuously think about this and I am depressed. But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loyal kindness never ceases. His compassions never end. They are fresh every morning. Oh, your faithfulness is abundant. My portion is the Lord, I have said to myself. So I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who trust in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait patiently for deliverance from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let a person sit alone in silence when the Lord is disciplining him. Let him bury his face in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who hits him. Let him have his fill of insults, for the Lord will not reject us forever. Though he causes us grief, he then has compassion on us according to the abundance of his loyal kindness, for he is not predisposed to afflict or to grieve people, to crush underfoot all the earth's prisoners, to deprive a person of his rights in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a person in a lawsuit. The Lord does not approve of such things. Whose command was ever fulfilled unless the Lord decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that everything comes, both calamity and blessing? Why should any living person complain when punished for his sins? Let us carefully examine our ways. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have blatantly rebelled. You have not forgiven. You shrouded yourself with anger and then pursued us. You killed without mercy. You shrouded yourself with a cloud so that no prayer could get through. You make us like filthy scum in the estimation of the nations. All our enemies have gloated over us. Panic 
and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. Tears flow from my eyes and will not stop. There will be no break until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees what has happened. What my eyes see grieves me. All the suffering of the daughters of my city for no good reason. My enemies hunted me down like a bird. They shut me up in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head. I thought I was about to die. I have called on your name, O Lord, from the deepest pit. And you heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near on the day I called to you. You said, do not fear. Oh, Lord, you have championed my cause. You redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O oh Lord. Pronounce judgment on my behalf. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O oh Lord, all their plots against me. My assailants revile and conspire against me all day long. Watch them from morning to evening. I am the object of their mocking songs. Pay them back what they deserve, O Lord, according to what they have done. Give them a distraught heart. May your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and eradicate them from under the Lord's heaven. Okay. So our poet's got some feelings. There's a lot there, right? <sighs> I'm guessing if you were trying to enter in emotionally, you also felt some things. But if we're honest, at least I feel it, in the mix of feelings, we can feel some confusion, right? There's like a schizophrenic quality to this writing. The pictures that are being painted one after another, seem to be saying a number of different things, particularly about God. So like, how are we supposed to understand these images of the divine, some of which are pretty disturbing? What impact are they supposed to have on our own experience of faith in exile? I think this question brings me to the first thing I want to name about what I think Lamentations 3 demonstrates about lament. And that's this, that lament isn't about speaking rightly about God. It's about speaking truthfully to our experience of suffering. Do you hear me? Lament isn't really about speaking rightly about God, whatever that would mean. It's about speaking truthfully to our experience of suffering. Throughout this chapter, we see multiple images of God presented. Images that I think don't always feel like they hold well together, right? I'm just going to show you a few that I noticed. You may have seen more, but I'll just draw your attention to a few that really stood out for me. Okay, we'll put these kind of on the slide. We have God as the violent aggressor or punisher. It says things like, he's broken my bones. He's torn me to pieces. He ground my teeth in gravel. That's an image, right? 
Then there's God as absent and withdrawn, the, the abandoning God. He shut out my prayer. You shrouded yourself with a cloud so no prayer could get through. God has abandoned me. Then there's God as faithful and loving. That whole section with like the Lord's loyal kindness never ceases, his compassions never end. God is good who, to those who trust in him, to the one who seeks him. And then towards the end, we seem to have this other image of God as this like vindicating hero, the avenger God, right? Pay them back for what they deserve, O oh Lord. Avenge me. So which is it? Is God vengeful? Is God punitive? Absent? Tender? Loving? Is God somehow all of these things? If we experienced a person who is aggressive and punishing sometimes, withdrawn other times, than loving and kind on different occasions, we would rightly call that person manipulative and abusive. Is that what we're supposed to think of God? Well, I understand these questions, and I think they're natural. Ultimately, I think to get too caught up in them misses the point of what the poet is doing here. I believe lament is not ultimately concerned with naming what is objectively true about the nature of the divine. Lament is being truthful about the human experience of suffering, because when things get dark, let's be honest, conversations of faith get hard. We all feel a tension between speaking what we may have believed to be true about God, that God loves us, God is for us, God is good, alongside our real lived experience of betrayal and loss and hurt and abandonment. But lament reminds us that in the midst of our suffering, our honest voice, speaking the cries of our hearts, that is what God is looking for, more than any proclamation of right doctrine. This is the very tradition Jesus himself engaged in during his own excruciating experiences of suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he knew the torture that was coming his way, knowledge that put him in such distress that the gospel writers described him as sweating blood. Jesus called out to God to take the bitter cup he felt he was being asked to drink away. And then on the cross, as he hung on the tree, his body brutalized and failing him, he called upon the ancient words of lament that his tradition had offered in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the places, perhaps, where the fullness of Jesus' humanity is most clearly on display as we see him suffering. And in his suffering, struggling with the divine. With these texts, they don't teach us that God is an abusive father who forces his son to drink a suicidal cup and then abandons him as he does. No, that is not what these texts intend to do. They teach us that the tradition of deep faith includes the wrestling, 
the same wrestling that the story of Jacob illustrates as he wrestled an angel, the personification of the divine, all night and afterwards forever walked with a limp. And in the wake of that encounter, Jacob was given the new name Israel, a name that meant wrestles with God. It is not a coincidence that his descendants, as they formed a collective identity, assumed that same name, the people who wrestle with God. Wrestling with the divine through the painful reality of humanity is not heresy. It is the act of faithful engagement in a time of deep loss. Amen? The life of faith includes the why God that's at the heart of this kind of wrestling. In fact, the actual name of the book we call Lamentations in Hebrew is something more akin to an exclamative gasp followed by a bewildered question. It's difficult to translate, which is why we're given the title Lamentations. But I think honestly, in our vernacular, the best way to translate the real title for this set of laments is OMG, WTF, oh my God, what the fuck? Yes, this open-ended WTF is actually what is being explored in different ways throughout the whole book. And at the heart of the whole book of Lamentations is this deep question, where the fuck is God in this anyway? That is the heart of Lamentations. And I use this language recognizing that's strong language, but I think it's appropriate here. It really is the only language I think we have to give voice to the emotion that this poet is communicating. Much of the book is about God, but interestingly, especially a book likely written by a prophet, this book never actually speaks from God's point of view. God is a character being considered by humans, wrestled with through the voices of a group of humans trying to make meaning of their real pain. We never get God's take on which perspective. Instead, we just get the human wrestling and it's messy and it's raw and it's chaotic and conflicted, just like all of us in our own experiences of suffering and pain. So for me, seeing this messiness in our Bible gives me hope that my own messiness, my own dark thoughts, my own WTFs, my own cynicism, my own anger at God, my doubts with God when things go badly, this all belongs. Just like these laments belong. The inclusion of these texts in our scriptures remind us that this raw cacophony is sacred work. 
God seems to be present in the very processing of the pain. The next thing I notice looking at Lamentations 3, I want to point out, is that it's helpful to have structures for processing the chaos of suffering. It's really helpful to have structures for processing the chaos of suffering. As much as the emotion expressed in this lament can feel chaotic, there is really a structure to the form that seems to be an important part of the work as well. Structure that most of us who aren't familiar with ancient Jewish poetry will miss. So I'm just going to draw our attention to a few things. First, I want to draw our attention to the structure of the whole book. The series of five poems, which I encourage you to take some time in the next week or two, and it's, it's not long. You can go and just read the whole thing. But the series of the five poems is actually arranged as what's called a chiasmus. What is a chiasmus? A chiasmus, or sometimes it's called a chiasm, is a very common ancient literary device that we see in many different writings in the Bible. And it's a way of arranging texts to create a structure that reveals how the author is thinking about the content and where the emphasis is supposed to land. Okay, it's a way of arranging the text to communicate, here's what I want you to really take away. It's a kind of V-like structure in which the centerpiece of the V is the heart of the text. So a chiasmus structure in general looks something like this. You'll have something like section one that has like the first theme, I'm calling it the A theme. The next section has the B theme. The next section has the C theme. And, and it can go on and go deeper, but we'll just say that we have that many layers. And then at, once you hit the middle layer, you start to kind of peel back. Section four now repeats the B theme. Section five, now repeats the A theme. What's in section three? That is the standalone, kind of the key to understanding the whole text. So the gospel writers actually use this a lot in the way they arrange the stories of the life of Jesus. So I'm just planting that little seed. That's a really interesting way to kind of look at the gospels anew is by starting to find some of those chiasmuses and think about why did they arrange these stories in this way? What kind of extra meaning might we gain from that. But to our text today, Jeremiah or whoever composed Lamentations did the same thing when they brought these five poems together. So we have a graphic that descri describes the way this one scholar um, understood the chiasmus, that chapters one and five have these parallels around the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapters 2 and 4 have similar themes around processing what they perceive as God's anger and judgment. And then chapter 3, what we've been looking at, is like the emotional response of the lamenter. So I just show you all this so you understand that there is like a deep form, a real structure that the writer is employing here that gives them a way to process these chaotic feelings. And the structure gets actually even more intricate than even understanding the chiasmus of the whole book. Because each of these poems is also, in some way, a version of an acrostic poem. Okay? That means that they go through the alphabet and they begin each stanza, or they order kind of what they're saying by ordering them around different letters of the alphabet. Okay? 
a typical acrostic. You may have done, like my kids do these kinds of cards, right, at Mother's Day, right? It's like Leah, and they like something for L, something for E, blah, blah, blah. Um, these kind of acrostic poems were very common in ancient Israel, and often they would, you know, they would go alphabetically. So we talk about the A line, uh, the B line, using our English alphabet, C line, etc. Okay? Now, this... Um, most of these chapters, if you went back and look at all of Lamentations, you'll see that all of the other, one, two, four, and five, they have one line per letter. It's a 22, 22 letters in the alphabet. All those chapters are 22 verses long. But Lamentations 3, what we're looking at, the heart of the book, this is the strongest acrostic of all because this chapter is 66 verses. In this chapter, there are three lines for each letter. So it's like extra emphasis on this acrostic form. They're tripling down on it, okay? In the Hebrew, the author is taking you through the Hebrew alphabet and speaking three lines in a row that begin with each letter. So I left those kind of, um, it, when, we were, when I was reading it, I intentionally kind of left so that you would kind of see, you may have noticed if you were reading along the headings that showed us each letter, how they were beginning another set of three lines, okay? For ancients, why use this form? For ancients, it communicated a kind of totality. It was like there was a recognition that some experiences can't ever be fully spoken to. In our kind of vernacular, often we'll say something like, words just fail. And I think uh, these exiles felt the same thing that when we encounter great loss, there's some way in which we can never really name all of the pain. But using the acrostic itself communicates a sense of completeness. So no, the images the poet depicts can't capture every single angle of the experience of suffering, but by using the acrostic form, particularly the triple acrostic in the center of the chiasmus, there's this sense that the form itself communicates the breadth of pain in a way that no actual set of words could. It communicates the pain is what we would say is like from A to Z, from very beginning to very end. This is the whole experience. It's just all of it. The structures behind lament help the lamenters organize their thoughts and speak the unspeakable. The ancient exiles needed this ritual and form in order to process the chaos of suffering. Now, many of us who've been formed by, I would say, majority white church traditions have had our faith cultivated in a system that by and large did not offer structures to process the chaos of suffering. At times, our traditions may have even discouraged vocalizing our grief and pain. In his excellent book on Lamentations, Prophetic Lament, Sung Chan Ra proposes that most churches fundamentally are rooted in either a theology of celebration or a theology of suffering. And many Western majority white churches are rooted in that theology of celebration. Lots of these churches also follow a clear formal liturgy. The emphasis is often on celebrating the ways that God has been victorious 
and promises victory for those who follow God. So the texts that are at the center of the liturgy, the scriptures that are preached from the lectionary, they are all drawn from this celebratory point of view. Rarely are the darker laments spoken in these contexts. The worship is scripted, but the worshipers don't often acknowledge or perhaps even recognize that the script comes from a privileged point of view that often minimizes suffering and ultimately upholds or even celebrates a status quo, which we must name is a status quo that ultimately supports white supremacy. Ra points out how the less liturgical traditions like the Pentecostal tradition have often come first, arisen from the margins where the people of God are more in touch with a the theology of suffering. When those who are living experiences that cannot be spoken to through the privileged prayers of celebration, the spirit has broken out to help people create new structures that speak a more diverse set of experiences in the journey of faith than the traditional forms made space for. So African-American slaves sung their laments in the songs we call Negro spirituals. Latinx Pentecostals have often released their suffering through expressive embodied dance in worship or powerful prayers of spiritual warfare. Sadly, at times, the white Western church rooted in celebration has not only failed to create structures for lament, they have even shamed and suppressed those communities who do give voice to pain. In the British Isles for centuries, Funerals were marked by the distinct cry of keening as women in the Celtic community engaged in a raw art form of grief that had been with their people for, from ancient times. But as the Catholic Church rose to prominence in Ireland, the practice of keening was looked down upon. The women who cried dissonantly together and beat their hands rhythmically on a loved one's casket, they were silenced as the priests took full control of the funeral rites. Today, the tradition of keening itself has been lost because the church had no space for the raw expression of suffering that it gave voice to. The truth is that all of us need to grow in being able to hold the tension of both celebration and suffering. We benefit from practices that lead us into celebratory worship, yes, but we also need practices that call us at times to lament. We need the forms to process the chaos of grief and where our traditions have forgotten or suppressed lament we need to look to those who've maintained these practices so we can grow in creating our own authentic stru structures and forms to process the chaos of pain and injustice that we see in the world. And that brings me to my final point as we wrap it up. Lament opens us up to experience connection and unity as we hold collective pain we are opened up to experience connection and unity as we hold collective pain. Lament is not just about speaking your own individual truth. 
It's not just about your story of suffering. Lament connects the individual experience of suffering with the universal experience of suffering. Because all of us, if we are human, sooner or later, we will experience suffering and loss. It is part of the human experience. Our personal stories of loss and pain are part of a collective grief that is endemic to the human condition. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 is not sharing his own tortured experience. This man he is describing is not himself per se. It is a personification of his whole people. His people are being walled in. His people are being attacked by God. His people are struggling to, uh, to, repent, to turn. His people are trying to hang on to God's faithfulness. He is speaking solidarity with the whole community. Now, if anyone could distance themselves as an individual from the exiles and the judgment they, they believe themselves to experience, experiences Jeremiah as a prophet he was sent to speak to the people about the ways that they were falling short decrying acts of sin and injustice that he himself was innocent of but in his words of lament there's no distance between the poet and the other exiles he is united with them in suffering he speaks solidarity with them he gives voice to the corporate pain as if it were only his the personal resonates with the collective and all who hear it and read it and recite it enter into that corporate solidarity in suffering too. In the same way, engaging the work of lament as a community has the power to bring connection and unity as we hold one another's pain. We don't need to have experienced the same circumstances to connect with one another in loss. In recent weeks, our nation has been having a more public conversation about the entrenched nature of white supremacy in our culture. And most of us here at Haven have been active participants in some way in these conversations, engaging in the learning, um, perhaps participating in actions that the Black Lives Matter movement is calling for. But particularly for those of us who are white, Making space for lament is part of the work that can often get overlooked. Justice work is not just about being on trend. It's not about signaling our virtue as good woke people. At the core, justice work is rooted in the deep understanding that all is not well. Things are not as they should be. The cultural systems we've put into place are causing irreparable harm. Until we can really attend to the suffering that injustice causes, until the comfort of our status quo is broken, we will not be reliable partners in the work of cultural disruption and transformation. One of the most tender moments, I believe, in the scriptures took place at the graveside of a man named Lazarus. As his sisters lamented the loss of their dear brother, Jesus arrived and he wept with them. He was not distanced from their grief in any way, even though he seemed to know that what was not well would actually soon be made right. 
But no, in that moment, Jesus allowed himself to weep with those who weep. And in so doing, he reminded us that it is not only the experience of suffering that unites us as humans, but also the experience of empathy and compassion. May this be a part of what all of us find in this exile. May we receive grace and permission to speak the unspeakable and give language to our suffering. May we cultivate structures that help us order the chaos of grief. And may we find unity in our sorrow and comfort in the solidarity. And may we experience the divine presence compassionately attending to our hearts as we do the sacred work. Amen. Amen.